So I'd like to go ahead and try and answer a question today that came in from Mark and Robin. This came in our comments section, uh, and this is in response to a recent post we did, What Happened at the Cross? And um, um, I'm going to go ahead and sort of skim a little bit here because it's a, it's a lengthy comment, and I, I want to just sort of get right into sort of the meat of it here, into the question. Uh, here we go. I've become aware of teachings by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, or the SDA. So this has to do with the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, I've become aware of, of teachings by the SDA that I think undermine the complete and finished work of Christ at the cross and his currently being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. A dear friend is SDA, and we always talk about the Lord. And uh, while it seems as though we believe the same things, I've naively thought our differences were simply over when to go to church and what not to eat. However, I've become, I've begun to sense that there are bigger differences, even though she affirms that we are saved by grace through faith, and it has left me a bit confused and curious. I've begun to study what SDA doctrines, history, etc. are, and, uh, am becoming convinced that the differences are huge. Well, let me commend you first and foremost for going into the direct source material and learning about the SDA church. I actually owe a great debt to a friend of mine at church who was saved out of the SDA and, uh, um, uh, and has shared resources with me to, to read and to, to learn more about the movement. I had some sort of basic general understanding of it before. I'd had friends in the past that had been part of it at one time too. Um, but it helped me really kind of get a sense uh, and, and really kind of get me thinking through some of the implications of some of the doctrinal things that they hold, which I think touches on the questions that you're asking. So I commend you on, on doing the same thing, go, and, go into some of the uh, actual history of the church itself, its own doctrines and that, uh, doing some of your own homework there. Good for you. Uh, so here's the question, uh, or the question for you. What is your take on how we should view the SDA church? Do you believe that a person could be truly saved yet remain part of this church? Actually, this question would be the same for a Catholic, right? You think they are a cult. What questions or discussions do you suggest with my beloved SDA friend to help get to the core uh, error of that religion or maybe to know if she's even born again? Well, these are good questions. Um, okay, well... Let me, uh, just by um, brief explanation for those who are unfamiliar with uh, the SDA church, this is a relatively recent um, uh, movement, a group that has formed in the 1800s, um, uh, right around the 1840s, mid-1840s or so, in general, in connection with uh, what was known as the Millerite movement, um, ultimately, the birth of the SDA kind of falls around the time when they predicted the second coming of Christ, which they anticipated taking place between uh, March of 1843 and March of 1844. Uh, they are largely um, believers in um, uh, not only uh, the scriptures, which they would claim is their doctrinal statement. They don't have a, uh, they wouldn't claim to have another doctrinal statement, although they they do when you compile their beliefs. But they would point to the Bible and say that's our doctrinal statement. Uh, however, they also do hold, at least largely, there's been a, a move away based on revelations of, of plagiarism and such, but by and large, much of the movement has and remains committed to the teachings and prophecies of uh, of a woman named Ellen G. White, who was uh, the prophetess of that movement. Again, there's been a tremendous uh, amount of claims and, and demonstrations of plagiarism, some estimates as much as 90% of the things that she spoke authoritatively or, or in terms of explanation or even prophetically that ultimately can be ascribed to others that she sort of adopted as her own or she 
Um, after having heard someone express what they thought was a prophecy from God, she sort of claimed it as her own and shared it in this kind of thing. Well, this led to accusations of plagiarism, which were pretty well demonstrated. Uh, oftentimes, however, those who were uh, maybe not falling in line with her authority and that sort of were ushered out of the church and sort of marginalized and those kinds of things. So there's a history there of... Um, um, of at least plagiarized prophecy, but I would argue also false prophecy, and in particular in regard to the idea of the second coming of Christ. More on that in just a second. Now, one of the uh, issues with Seventh-day Adventism, or, or one of the reasons why uh, the SDA church has been kind of an enigma in church history, uh, is because they are what we would call heterodox. They hold uh, a number of views that at least in when they when they share their views they would claim that their views are the same uh as historic christianity they would claim to be trinitarian they would believe uh in salvation by grace through faith as uh, as um uh, mark and robin uh, mentioned here they would hold uh, trinitarian views the deity of christ this kind of thing so they they hold they would purport to hold and i think legitimately do hold many orthodox beliefs. However, the reason they're called heterodox is because they also have additional beliefs that they would hold uh, as central to Christian theology, which have not been part of historic Christianity. Um, a couple of those will come up here as we kind of move through this. But um, but there are basically, having said that, there are basically, uh, while there are a number of doctrinal positions that they hold, there are, uh, I could sort of boil it down to three basic legs on the stool that are uh, core essentials within uh, Seventh-day Adventist movement. Uh, one is, uh, as uh, uh, Mark and Robin mentioned, the idea of what day to worship on, what day to go to church. Um, the the SDA church has traditionally held the view that, that believers gather on the Sabbath day, which has always been Saturday. Uh, and to worship on Sunday is akin to taking the mark of the beast. Now that extreme view is is demonstrably wrong because the mark of the beast is a product of the beast and the second beast, the antichrist and false prophet being on the scene and demanding that the world take the mark along with um, uh, as a as a as a mark of allegiance to the the beast and and uh, worship flows from this and all that. But also you can't buy or sell without that mark. So this is a uh, there is a literal coming of this person who will. Uh, have an association association with him, the idea of the mark of the beast. So that hasn't happened yet. So the idea of worshiping on Sunday as somehow being that is uh, just really um, not a scriptural idea at all. Um, but um, the idea of the Sabbath being a day of uh, for worship and that kind of thing uh, is something they hold very, very firmly. And so um, this would be a big deal. Uh, what day should we worship on? Well, I think you can make the case pretty easily from Scripture that, you know, the, the believers came together on the first day of the week, the day that the Lord rose from the dead, uh, first day of the week being Sunday. They gathered on that day, and that became just the practice of the church throughout history. Um, but I, I would suggest that uh, the idea of pressing the idea of the Sabbath so hard does begin to give you sort of a sense that there is a legalistic bent to uh, to this movement. Uh, Paul himself says in Colossians chapter 2, the idea, don't let anyone judge you according to new moons or Sabbaths or feast days and that kind of thing. These things were a shadow of things to come, 
but the uh, the reality is Christ. And so um, believers can worship on any day they want. They don't have to worship on a particular day. Sunday has traditionally been the day, but there's no mandate. You're not committing a, uh, an evil if you don't meet on Sunday, per se. It's just that traditionally that's what we've done uh, based on the idea of gathering on the first day of the week. So, But that is a an element, a strong element within the SDA movement. Uh, another is the idea of adhering, once again, to the idea that uh, Ellen G. White uh, was an authoritative prophetess who received revelation from God that was authoritative to the church. Now, this is interesting. Uh, this question has come up recently, too, because we just over the last few weeks have spoken about some of these ideas as we're in Ephesians 4.11 on Sunday mornings, talking about the gifts that Christ gave the church, prop, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. And we're making our way through that section there. We've talked a bit about some of the modern day uh, claims to the office of apostle and prophet, uh, in particular, like the New Apostolic Reformation movement and that kind of thing. But, uh, but Ellen G. White, once again, um, as I mentioned, um, much of what she spoke in terms of her authority in that has been demonstrated to have been plagiarized from others and that kind of thing. And so this creates a real problem among many in the STA movement. But that's the second pillar. The third has to do with the claim that Christ uh, was supposed to and I'll explain why they believe he did, in fact, return in the second coming, uh, in, um, in, uh, in the, the time between, uh, 1843 and 1844, March of 1843 and March of 1844. Um, the expectation was that he would come and return visibly. However, he didn't do that. And so the explanation then became, a matter of fact, when he didn't, uh, return during that period of time, uh, this became known as the Great Disappointment, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's an aptly named um, um, way to approach that. Um, but rather than sort of uh, uh, expose that as a false prophecy, instead what was done was, um, and this becomes now the third pillar, it's not so much the, the idea of the second coming per se, but it has to do with what is called uh, the sanctuary um um, the sanctuary doctrine, the idea that Christ in his death and resurrection rose and went to what was called the first sanctuary where uh, his offering for our sins provided the propitiation for them. Uh, however, in that period of time between 1843 and 1844, at some point, Christ moved from the first sanctuary into the second sanctuary where now he begins to uh, judge people not only based on the idea that they are saved by his finished work, but now he brings in this idea of the process of sanctification having something to do with whether or not you will be judged worthy uh, to be in his presence in eternity. And so, and of course, I'm as, as usual, for time's sake, I'm simplifying some of these ideas. But these three uh, are really formulate uh, the basis of uh, of, of, of the SDA's heterodoxy. Now, I would argue, and, and I, I want to do this respectfully because, uh, no less than like a Walter Martin when he wrote The Kingdom of the Cults had an appendix in that book, um, before he passed. I think it was before he passed. I think he actually, uh, was hesitant to, um, to classify the SDA as a cult because they did hold orthodox beliefs, even though they held these other beliefs. Uh, so I want to be respectful when I say that I, I would disagree with that. I do think that, in fact, they do fall outside the the pale of orthodoxy in the same way that the Catholic Church would. In this, in this way, I would say they're similar. Uh, Roman Catholicism and, and SDA are not really similar, except they do 
in terms of their additional non-biblical doctrines that they add to the scripture, uh, they create uh, some real issues in regard to the association of these extra doctrines to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. For example, um, an SDA person and even a Catholic, for example, might quote uh, Ephesians 2.8.9 and talk about how we are um, we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so the idea that we're saved by God's grace. However, if without this second sanctuary idea in the SDA movement, uh, you might be able to say that maybe they held that view. However, now that they've added the process of sanctification to the, uh, to, to the concept of salvation, now you have moved salvation being purely by grace to now having something to do with works, uh, works that can be judged, you know, our works, you know, that granted it's Christ that's working in us or the Holy Spirit that's working within us. But if you've not achieved a certain measure of sanctification, this now bears poorly on your entering into uh, a Christ, uh, eternity with Christ. And so there are elements now that, that admittedly in some ways, can be defined a little bit fuzzy in in this regard, but this doctrine is one that is held very firmly within the SDA movement. And so this is not an unimportant or even really a peripheral issue. And so um, similarly to, say, the Catholic Church, the idea that, um, you know, when they say that if we believe that we're saved by grace through faith alone, let us be, we're anathema, you know, the idea that you are cursed from, uh, you know, to the lowest hell, you're cursed from the, 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 the faithful and all this kind of thing. When we add our efforts on any level, at any point, in any way, to the finished work of Christ, we have moved it out of the realm of grace and by grace alone to now something that is contingent upon our works. It's in, in both cases, and I'm going to kind of stay focused on the SDA here because we did a, a little bit of a talk on, on, on Roman Catholicism a, a couple months ago. But when, when Paul in Romans chapter four, uh, and actually we, we talked about this a lot yesterday. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, put a link to yesterday's, uh, study from Ephesians where we talked about he gave some to be evangelists. We started by talking about the evangel, the idea of the good news, the gospel. And, to get the gospel wrong by adding something to it is catastrophic. It changes the gospel. It ceases to be a gospel of grace at that point. And so I will put a link there so you can listen to a longer exposition on that. But I would say just simply this, when you look at Romans four, five, matter of fact, turn to Romans four, five, uh, just so you can see it yourself. Uh, and as I said yesterday, it's very, very difficult to just take a passage in Romans, um, the, the case that Paul makes for a gospel by grace alone in this book um, is absolutely epic in the most explosive possible definition of that term. It's fantastic. But here in Romans 4, 5, listen to what Paul writes. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith shall be, uh, is accounted for righteousness. And then he goes on and quotes David from Psalm 32, or... um. Yeah, Psalm 32, where he talks about blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute sin. So the idea of this imputational, transactional event that takes place that is appropriated by faith, which Paul says in Romans 4, 5, is not classified as a work. Um, when we add something to that, the idea that we are in the process of sanctification, if we're not 
sanctified enough, then we fall short. Well, wait a minute, hold on. Then the, then the work of Christ was not finished. Uh, and so this becomes a really, really important thing. And it's because of this kind of thing that I, I would be very hesitant. As a matter of fact, I, I, I wouldn't classify the SDA church as a legitimate historic Christian expression. It is a different gospel because it adds to the gospel of grace. Uh, so, you know, and I think as, as more comes to be understood about the movement and, and really when I say that, what I really, what I mean to be saying is as we consider the implications of the core belief system of the SDA church, it can't fit within the pale of orthodoxy because it's not a gospel of grace. It is, it is, it is contingent at least in some degree. Uh, upon our works and our sanctification. So it, it, it falls by its own, uh, its own doctrinal stance outside the pale of orthodoxy in my view. And so that's how I view, uh, the SDA church. And so I would never encourage someone to be part of it. And I would argue that in much the same way that when someone becomes a student of scripture and they understand what Paul is talking about in regard to grace, uh, if they are Catholic, if they are uh, SDA, if they are part of any movement that um, that holds orthodox views but adds to them views that begin to become problematic for those orthodox views, again, they, they, they change grace into grace plus. Uh, that would be the most important one. And, well, I would say that would be right in line with with redefining the nature of Christ as, as divine or the nature of the Trinity or something like that. But this would be on par with that kind of thing, an essential doctrine. Uh, I would say that it is possible, uh, to answer your question directly, is it possible for someone to be a true born-again believer and be in the SDA church or, for that matter, in the Catholic church? Sure it is. It's possible. But it would be possible because they haven't considered the implications of those doctrinal positions. They may believe in Christ alone for their salvation. They may believe there's nothing they can do. But from a doctrinal position, when you understand the implications of these additional, uh, these, these doctrines that have literally been added, um, it, be, it becomes difficult to imagine that you would remain part of a movement that is, that has done that. Um, for me, that was one of the paramount reasons I left Catholicism is because the gospel is not a gospel of grace in Catholicism. It's not a gospel of grace in the SDA movement. And so um, I found that I, I couldn't in good conscience or good faith for that matter uh, stay within uh, the Catholic Church for that reason, and I would suggest it would be the same in the SDA movement. I think so. That leads me to you know the 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 last question here. You know, what questions do you or discussions do you suggest having with your friend? Uh, and I'm glad you refer to your friend as a beloved friend. Um, this is someone who you know matters to you, and and people ought to matter to us. People who are involved in our lives are put there by the Lord for us to have a, an influence for Christ upon, and so. Um, I guess my suggestion would be, uh, to do a couple of things. Um, it may be that she's not really familiar with some of the elements of Ellen White and her plagiarism or her false prophecies or some of those kinds of things. Those would be, uh, things to tactfully bring into the discussion and ask her how she's reconciled those things and say, you know, here's, this is part of the history or my understanding is, as I've been doing some research to understand your faith better, 
Um, these are some things I've come across. I'm just wondering, like, like, how do you deal with those things? What's, how do you respond to that? Uh, and see where that opens, uh, where that conversation goes. And I would ask a lot of questions and just let your friend tell you where she comes from. I would say when I, when I've met with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, I find, um, that it's helpful to, uh, even though I may feel that I very strongly understand elements of, of, of their doctrine and theology in that, I always like to ask them to tell me what their theology is and what their doctrinal positions are because, like in any religion, it's possible the person you're talking to may hold views that are maybe somewhat, you know, different than the hardline views of that movement. And so it's always good to let them tell you where they're coming from. Uh, and then you can address things that they, where they really are and not just assuming where they are when they might not be on every one of those points. So I think the, 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 the false prophecies and the false prophet, uh, LNG White would be a, a great place to spend time. Um, the other one would be the gospel. Uh, at the end of the day, this is really where you want to get to. You want to ultimately land on the, the issue of the gospel itself. And, you know, the, the, the scripture is replete and clear, unambiguous about the idea of the gospel by God's grace. Uh, to study the book of Romans, to go through Galatians, to spend time in, uh, in, in Paul's, uh, discussion about, um, you know, all this is of, of God, you know, in, in first, in second Corinthians chapter five. Um, you know, when you consider, uh, and of course not just there, but even, um, you know, John's gospel, we quoted John chapter one yesterday, and of course John 316, uh, along with these other passages, Romans and such, um, uh, at the end of the day, you want to come to the gospel. You want to spend time there because that's really the most important issue. Um, since they already at least purport to believe in Trinitarianism like an Orthodox believer would, a, a historic, a believer in the historic Christian faith, um, you don't probably have to press the issue of the deity of Christ too much. Although, let me bite my tongue on that just a little bit. There, there is a problem there too, because, um, there is a belief in the SDA movement that Christ, that, that when the eternal word became flesh, um, his, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of looking a little bit into this to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, but it does seem as though there is this sense of the weakening of his deity, uh, while in his humanity. And so, Matter of fact, this, this I think has a lot to do with, with this idea of the second sanctuary and the, um, the move to the second sanctuary and the idea of sanctification being part of the, uh, um, the process of being saved and this, uh, of, of being saved and such is that because Christ in his humanity, um, demonstrated a sinless life, he therefore demonstrated that we can live a sin, sinless life. And that connects with this idea of sanctification. Again, I'm, I'm still kind of studying that part a little bit. I, I, I'm not like spending days and days studying this topic with seven day Adventists, but it is something I'm looking further into. Uh, I found that fascinating. I just, for the sake of, I see the problems with that, but for the sake of understanding how they connect those dots, I, I I'm interested in maybe digging further into that. But so it, it may very well be that you do want to, Consider the fact that Christ, though he took on flesh and he, as it were, set aside his glory, uh, as Paul indicates in, in Philippians chapter two, he didn't set aside his deity though. It's something not to be grasped after, uh, because he's, he is God. He, he doesn't have to grasp after that which he already is. 
And so he didn't set aside his deity. He just set aside his glory. In terms of the SDA position on that or thinking on that, or maybe just this particular person, this beloved friend of yours, uh, it would be interesting to know where where uh, he or she is on that. And you may have to spend time talking about the deity of Christ. If he was not fully God and fully man, he could not pay for our sins. And so this is a very important point. Again, the deity of Christ, the, the nature of, of the, the triune nature of God, along with salvation by grace are among the 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 most important among the foundational truths of the Christian faith. They are they are um they are non negotiables. They are um core beliefs. They are essential doctrines within Christianity. So maybe it is worth spending a minute on that with uh, with your friend. So that would be that would be my suggestion. I guess you can listen to her answer those questions and find out if she is in fact born again. If she is born again, then it does seem to follow that you would want to leave the SDA church. Although, and this is another area where I would consider them to be somewhat cult-like, if not full-blown cult. Um, and that has to do with the idea that it's very, very difficult for somebody who's a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, um, or maybe an SDA, a Seventh-day Adventist, to leave that system. And I do know this from talking to my friend, because uh, your whole life is sort of wrapped up in this movement. All of your friends are there. You know, you're going, it's not just that you sort of just go to church there. Like your social structure is built around this. Uh, and and I, I get the sense from my conversation with my friend at church that, that it's 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 not just sort of a peripheral thing. It's it's strong enough where leaving it had consequences. There were relationships that were damaged, and there were, um, you know, there's still rift in family and that kind of thing in regards to what you can talk about and not and that kind of thing. Um, and and this is very very strong when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses. Very strong when it comes to Mormons. Very strong when it comes to any cult, whether Christian or not. These are. This system that is built to keep people in is a very potent thing. So it might be that, um, that your friend may turn out to have totally orthodox beliefs, uh, but have a hard time leaving it because, uh, because of those elements as well. It's, it's hard to say, and especially without knowing your friend. But these are things uh, I feel are important to keep aware of as you're having those discussions. They may, they may come up in conversation. It may be that this person believes like you and you say, well, why won't you come to my church? And you may see some trepidation in, in, in her face, uh, in her eyes. And you may think, oh gosh, well, uh, you know, that, that actually would cost me a lot, you know? Um, and so that, that becomes another thing to have to, you know, maybe help her with. And so, but anyway, um, I hope that helps. Um, you're definitely right where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. Uh, the, the work is finished. There is no more offering for sin. It's done. You know, it's finished. And so therefore, um, these, these peripheral, well, not peripheral, but these, uh, extemporaneous, these additional, uh, added doctrines become problematic as they connect to the, um, you know, the claims to holding to the Orthodox Christian faith. And so those are important things to consider. So, uh, again, that's, um, um, it's a bigger topic than that. There's a lot to be studied in, uh, Seventh-day Adventism to really understand it. Um, but, uh, but I think that hopefully will help. Uh, so hopefully it does, but thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it very, very much. And, uh, and Mark and Robin, thanks for watching and thanks for, uh, for reaching out. And if you have any questions or, uh, thoughts you want to share, you can always do so, uh, in the comment section on our YouTube channel. 
Uh, or if you just want to email me directly, you can do that at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. That's the church I pastor here in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, if you ever happen to be driving through Middle Tennessee and you want to come out and pay us a visit, we'd love to meet you. We've had a number of folks over the years do that. It's been just a blessing to, you know, put a face to a name that shows up in a comment section. It's kind of nice to meet you. So, but uh, in any case, whether here, there, or in the air, looking forward to meeting you one day as we uh, one day will be with the Lord. So for now, thanks for watching. Father, we thank you and praise you for all of your goodness and grace. We thank you for your deep and abiding love. We thank you that the work is finished, that our salvation has been secured by the finished work of Christ as he died for our sins, having died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day. All according to the scripture, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, we thank you that none of this rests on our shoulders. You invite us to believe, but you have done all the work. And so we praise you, we bless you, we thank you. We pray for uh, Mark and Robin's friend uh, who is in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We pray for any who are in the Seventh-day Adventist movement, that, Father, they would kind of recognize um, very clearly the problems in the theology. They would recognize uh, the flawed foundations and false prophecies and those kinds of things and want to depart from it uh, and instead become part of just a good, sound, solid Bible-teaching church. And whatever... Whatever is in the way hindering them from doing that, we pray that you would, by your hand and your Holy Spirit, remove that block and allow them the freedom to move into a healthier place, that they might know you and know you well, without distraction, without um, uh, distortion or any of those things. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. We exalt you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all you've done for us. And we rest and cling fully to that which is finished by Christ alone. We find our hope, our peace, our rest. I hesitate to say cling. It's all him clinging on to us ultimately. And we thank you that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We praise you and bless you in his name. Amen.